When I was reading this passage of scripture this week, I kept thinking of a scene from the movie Apollo 13. How many of you saw that movie? The true story about the astronauts on Apollo 13, where they had the difficulty on the, the way to the moon, where at that point in time, they didn't know that there had been an explosion in, in their oxygen line and tanks and those kind of things. But suddenly, the Apollo spacecraft started shaking violently, and uh, they called it a wicked shimmy. And Jim Lovell gets on the comm and says, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Famous words. For six anxiety-filled and fearful days, one problem after another was dealt with, diagnosed, and tried to be solved as they attempted to fix each one. And during that time, the entire world was glued to their television sets for several days to see if the problems could be fixed or if the astronauts would be hurled out into space someplace never to return. Or would they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere on re-entry? Or would they return safely to earth? Romans chapter 3 shows us that man, we have a problem. We have a problem. Man likes to think he's pretty good. In fact, he's pretty well convinced himself of that. In 1969, Thomas Harris wrote a best-selling self-help book called I'm Okay, You're Okay. And I don't think there was a student on the campus of Idaho State University that hadn't read that book. Man's okay. He ought to be able to pat himself on the back. He certainly ought to think positively about himself. He really likes to think he's good. But deep down inside, man has a real problem in convincing himself of his goodness. And the problem is guilt. Men and women, because men and women, all mankind are inevitably and invariably guilty. They are guilty, and they feel that way. Several years ago, Ann Landers wrote an interesting paragraph on guilt in her, her column where people would write in with their problems. Remember that? Some of us are showing our age again here. And uh, somebody had wrote in with the problem of guilt, and in that paragraph she says, one of the most painful Self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, selfish, rotten or tacky. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh or clay feet. You did wrong and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. Be assured the agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. End of paragraph. That's where the article ends. And she goes on to another subject. She says, guilt is painful. Guilt is normal. Guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it. But the question you want to ask her is, how do I get rid of it? What do I do with it? She doesn't have an answer. She goes on to the next subject. Now, Simon or Sigmund Freud's answer to feeling guilty was to just realize you didn't do anything wrong. You've never done anything wrong. You have no reason to feel guilty because it's never your fault. <laughs> and of course, man has a problem. And the problem is this. No matter how much man tells himself that he is good, he inevitably faces the fact that he does evil and he feels guilty because of that. Guilt drives people to alcohol, to drugs, to loneliness, to insanity, to suicide, 
even to mass murder. And when people play psychological games with their minds and they try to pass their guilt on to somebody else, it only increases their guilt. They're not only guilty for what they did, but now they're guilty for blaming somebody else for what they did. And sin and its resultant guilt poses the ultimate and severest problems for all mankind. And men would really like to get rid of their guilt. They really would. But they really don't know how to get rid of it. John MacArthur told the story of about a man who felt guilty and he sent in a $50 check to the IRS. And he wrote in the accompanying letter, I'm sending you this check because I can't sleep at night because I was dishonest with my income tax. P.S. If I can sleep after sending this, okay. If I can't, I'll send you the balance. <laughs> Man has a problem. The whole human race is under sin. A problem so severe, so horrible, that if the problem is not correctly diagnosed, and if the problem is not solved, then according to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, man is under the wrath of God for all eternity and faces an eternity of living with the horrible consequences of sin and guilt. The problem must be diagnosed correctly and the right solution must be applied. But you see, there is good news. And there's a reason it's called good news, which evangelion means we translate the gospel. Now, if you had a physical ailment and you went to the doctor, he or she would what? They would first diagnose the problem. They would ask questions, certain questions, and they'd run certain tests trying to find out what's the matter. Because without a proper diagnosis, the disease or the infirmity cannot be cured. Now, on the physical level, there's still no guarantee that you can be healed, right? But on the spiritual level, with the proper diagnosis and the proper solution applied, the problem of guilt and sin is solved permanently, forever, guaranteed for everyone who believes. The recognition of the sin of man and the guilt of man is the first element in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we proclaim the gospel, there's some things we must realize about who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. The church, we are in the world to tell men and women they're sinful. To tell men that they have real guilt. It's not just psychological or psychiatric or emotional guilt, but it's real guilt. They have, in fact, sinned against a holy God and they will be held responsible and accountable for that. And that's where the gospel always begins. And that's why in the epistle to the Romans that we've been studying, before Paul expounds on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he'll spend chapter 3, 4 through 16 talking about the gospel and Jesus' saving work and how that applies to both Jews and Gentiles, but he has to begin with a strong statement on sin. Before he can actually get to the remedy, he has to present the disease. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where we started this section of Scripture, clear back in the first, verse, or first chapter, through chapter 3, verse 19, where we stopped reading today, Paul is making the point that every human being who ever lived on the face of the earth stands condemned and are held guilty before God. 
Every mouth is stopped, he says. In other words, there's no defense. There's nothing you can say. There's no but, 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 or whatever, like a motorboat going on. There's no self-justifying words. There's nothing you can say that say you had a good reason for this. Every mouth is stopped and all the world is guilty before God. And that's what the gospel first has to say to every man and every woman. As the church, we're not here to tell people they're okay. We're not here to tell them they're really all right the way they are. We're not here to tell people they need to just add a little bit of religion to their already Godward bent, whatever that is, that everything's going to be okay. And God would never look upon them as sinners. They're, they're too nice for that. We're not here to say that. We are here to say that men and women are sinners. And they have real guilt before God. And they're under condemnation. You see, if someone doesn't understand the bad news, they're never going to receive the good news. And so in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, Paul summarizes the bad news. The bad news about sin and guilt. And it's the language that Paul uses here. It's, it's in the form of a formal indictment against humanity. It's the, the terminology of the courtroom. Uh, standing before a judge and hearing the charges read as you stand there before the judge. God is the judge and Paul is the prosecuting attorney. So please turn to Romans chapter 3 verse 9 again. The ninth verse of the third chapter of Romans. Paul says that he is already charged. These are formal charges against humanity. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, the terms Jews and Greeks refers to all humankind uh, because, you know, the biblical perspective is there is the Jews. They are God's called people. And then everybody else is a Gentile or 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 a Greek. So both Jews and Gentiles, everyone, everyone who is ever born is under sin. Now, Paul lays out the specific charges under the indictment. And I put them in three categories as Paul uses scripture. He quotes scripture for every one of these to lay out the formal charges. It's a courtroom scene. It's an indictment against humanity. It has that feel of an accordment, an arraignment, and each one of us are, are on trial. I've had the opportunity to be an a, uh, expert witness on occasion you know, in a courtroom. I, I can't even imagine what it would mean to be the defendant and be the one charged and and that's what's going on here. So first of all, Paul lays out the ungodliness of sin, then the pervasiveness of sin, and then the universality of sin. So first of all, we have the ungodliness of sin in verses 10 and 11 of Romans chapter 3, which is quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There's no one who seeks for God. Now jump down to verse 18 as he closes his argument, as it were. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They do not fear God because they're not even looking for God. And Paul's thought goes all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. If you'd like to flip back there for a moment, the 18th verse of the first chapter that begin this whole section. 
not seeking God nor fearing God is the core of all ungodliness. So verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Men do not seek God. They do not fear God. Instead, they what? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's a conscious, deliberate suppression of the truth that God has placed in the heart of every human being. This is more an assertion that when people renounce God, that they tend to plunge recklessly into evil, whereas when they fear God, they shun evil. It's rather that scripture identifies the essence of sin as ungodliness. God's complaint is that we don't really seek him at all as human beings. As John Stott has said, God's complaint is that we do not make his glory our supreme concern. That we do not set him before us, that there is no room for him in our thoughts, and that we do not love him with all our powers. Sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. And Paul says in verse 11 of Romans chapter 3, there is none who understands. There's nobody who gets this. And this tells us that man is not only evil, he's also ignorant, which compounds the problem. There's none who understands. And, and that's a quote that comes from two places, Psalm 14.2 and Psalm 53.3. You see, not only is man bad, ungodly, but he doesn't even understand what good is. Now we're getting into a rather bleak picture, aren't we? That's the whole point. Man has no way to perceive reality, so he can't understand the truth. He has no right understanding of God. He has no right apprehensions of God. He has no ability in his humanness to perceive truth about God on his own. So that's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, but a natural man, that is a man in the flesh, a man who does not have the spirit of God, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. We, we could put it this way. The flesh, the body has like we have ears and eyes and, and other ways and touch and feel to understand things of the physical realm. There's no spiritual organ in the body to help man understand these things. That is, man is to the spiritual world as a deaf, dumb and blind person would be to the physical world if that person never learned to hear or speak or communicate in any way whatsoever. Man is totally and utterly cut off from any understanding of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 describes mankind's predicament. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Put simply, all the lights have gone out, it's totally darkened. And the heart is so hardened that nothing can penetrate it. Not, is, not only is man hopelessly evil, he is hopelessly stupid. 
ignorant. He can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. His heart is hardened, petrified, if you will. He has no feeling. The word hardened is porosis. You know, we use that word in medical terms whenever it talks of a hardening. They add the word porosis uh, to it. Uh, a loss of feeling, a loss of sense. Spiritually, he is blind. He is ignorant. He can't feel. He's as hard as a rock. He is utterly insensitive. He has no perception of God's truth. His mind is so distorted that all his conclusions are wrong. And when you go to him with the truth, he doesn't want to believe it. And you tell him what his problem is, and he isn't even ready to hear it. I was listening to a sermon by John MacArthur this last week, and and he said, mankind's a lot like Ringo the Duck. And I go, say what? <laughs> and he said, don't you think? You don't know who Ringo the Duck is? And I can hear the congregation in his church going, what are you talking about? And he says, well, I read about a duck by the name of Ringo. And he lived in Grenadier Park in Toronto, Canada. There was a pond there. People are always throwing their pop cans in the park and in the pond. And Ringo was trying to stick his beak into a pop can and he got the pull tab around his beak and he couldn't get it off and he couldn't open his mouth. As a result, Ringo the duck was starving to death. And so he became a project for all the people of Toronto to help poor Ringo the duck. They tried everything they could to get that duck, but they couldn't catch him. He didn't know people were trying to help him and he was starving to death. They actually went so far, this article said, as to get a cannon that shoots out a net. And they shot a net over the whole pond, got all the other ducks, but they didn't get Ringo. They hired a skin diver to swim around the pond, to swim up to Ringo and grab him from under the water. But Ringo knew what size ducks were, and he knew that guy wasn't a duck. They tried to allure him with food, with bread, with corn, everything. But all that did was draw hundreds and hundreds of seagulls to the little pond. Finally, they got Canada's champion duck caller. And he got the attention of every duck in the pond but Ringo. They never could help Ringo. He just didn't understand that all those attempts were not designed to frighten him, but to free him from his problem. We deal with man on the same terms. He is hopelessly blinded to the truth about God, but he doesn't know it. And when you approach him with the gospel and you try to share the gospel with him, he thinks you're trying to take something away from him or you're trying to bug into his life or do something weird. He thinks you're trying to hurt him, or trying to make him into a certain way. You're, you're trying to make things impossible for him. When all you want to do is take the tab off his beak so his problem can be solved. There's a lot of awful lot of information in this world, but there's very little truth in man's mind. There's an awful lot of information, but no truth. Paul said they're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the second formal charge in the raiment is in verses 13 through 17 of Romans chapter three. It's the pervasiveness of sin. And beginning in verse 13, Paul quotes four Old Testament scripture passages to bring this charge against all humankind. Verse 13, he says their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving the poison of asp is under their their lips. 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. And then he adds, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Sin affects every part of our human condition, every faculty and function, including our mind, our emotions, sexuality, conscience and will. And in verses 13 through 17, Paul does a deliberate listing of different parts of their body. He says their throats are open graves. That is, they're full of corruption and infection. And so out of their throats, you know, comes all this yucky stuff Their Their tongues practice deceit instead of being dedicated to the truth. We don't see any deceit today on news or anything like that, do we? I mean. How many times do people call themselves liars or call other people liars day after day? Their, their lips spread poison like snakes. Their mouths are filled with bitter curses. Their feet are swift in the pursuit of violence and scatter and run and miseries in their path. And instead of walking in the way of peace, their, their eyes are looking in the wrong direction. They do not reverence God's. We have throats, tongues, lips, mouths, feet. Eyes, these. But God gave us these bodily limbs and organs. He created us the way we were so that we might serve people and glorify God. Instead, these bodily functions are used to harm people and are used in rebellion against God. Now, this listing doesn't mean that every person is depraved as he can possibly be, that everybody's going to participate in the same level and all of these different sins to the same level and those kind of things. It's not, it's not saying that at all. And it's not saying that all human beings are drunkards, felons, adulterers, or murderers, or, or mass murderers. But it does show us that every part of our humanness, every part of our humanness has been tainted with sin. Every part. And because of that, Dr. J.I. Packer has put it succinctly, He says, on the one hand, no one is as bad as he or she might be. That's true. While on the other, no action of ours is as good as it should be. And that's true as well. Sin permeates and affects every part of the human body. Everything man does apart from the spirit of God stems from an evil, hardened, corrupted heart, which does not understand God. And what did John Stott say is the essence of sin? He says, sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne, which belongs to God alone. But the prosecutor, Paul, has not rested his case yet. (laughs) If that weren't bad enough. The third charge in the indictment, Back up to verse 10 of Romans chapter 3. Verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks from God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Thirdly, the Old Testament quotations teach the universality of sin. Negatively, there is... None righteous, not a one. There's no one who understands. 
No one who seeks God. I think that should say a lot to churches today who have what they call called seeker sensitive worship services. Because, yeah, what <laughs> there's no one who seeks. There's no one who does good, not even one. Why is that? Turn over to the fifth chapter of Romans for a moment. Fifth chapter, the twelfth verse. Why is that? Because as human beings, we all inherited a terminal disease from our father Adam. It's called a sin nature or just called sin in general. Verse 12. Of Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. God warned Adam and Eve that in the day they disobeyed him and they ate of the fruit of the tree, what? They would die. Satan came along and said, oh, you won't die, will you? How stupid do you think God thinks you are or whatever? You know, you will die. This referred to the curse of physical death, where at the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they were in sin, the cells in their body began to corrupt for the very first time. And Romans says all creation groans waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. The world began to corrupt for the first time. Everything's going into corruption. And they eventually died physically as all human beings do. How do we know that the wages of sin is death? One out of one don't make it. <laughs> that's, that's what happens. But it also refers to spiritual death. I don't know if we give enough thought to this. Spiritual death means being cut off from the life of God in their very souls. Death always means separation. That's what death means in the Bible. Physical death is the separation of the body from the soul. The separation of the body from the soul. Spiritual death is the separation of man's spirit from God's spirit. Every person born into this world is born spiritually dead. Separated from God. What was the first thing Adam did? He went and hid himself. You know, Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. Adam didn't know where he was because he, he, had, he had sin. He was hiding from God. He, had, he was dead in his trespasses and sins. He had no ability to relate to God on a spiritual level because sin had put that big, ugly barrier between him and God. And since Adam's original sin, the entire human race is born into sin, alienated from the life of God. Hence, no one is born righteous, not even one. No one apart from God's saving grace is able to seek or attain righteousness in God's sight because we sin in many different ways. Now, the assessment that was given back in Genesis chapter six, verse five, you don't need to turn to it. This is just prior to the flood, and this is what God this is God's commentary on the entire human race, and it's also true of anybody who's outside of the life of Christ today. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
You think we live in a bad time. How'd you like to live just right before the flood of, of Noah? Verse 12 of Romans chapter 3 adds, All have turned aside, together they have become useless. Now the repetition here hammers home the point. Twice we are told that all have gone their own way. Four times we hear that no one is righteous. And twice that not even one is an exception. Now to be righteous is to live in conformity to God's law. And the best man can do, the best the noblest man can do, the most learned man can do, the most giving and generous man can do, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like, there has never been a man who can stand up to the test of the law of God. And that's what we've been studying in our Sunday school class in Hebrews. Why was the law given? It was given to bring the knowledge of sin. And so the law increases sin. I like the example is, you know, once we know it's against the law, we have more of a tendency to sin, right? You go, I don't, I don't follow you, pastor. Well, say you're walking down the street in Boise and there's a tall fence right along the sidewalk. It's a construction fence and you just walk past. You might wonder what's on the other side or what they're building over there, but uh, you just walk past, you know, and then one day you walk past that fence and somebody put a little sign above one of the knot holes. Do not look in this hole. <laughs> sin's going to increase. <laughs> I guarantee the human nature, we're going to sneak back. We're going to go back sometime. We're going to look around and see if anybody's looking. If nobody's looking, we're going to look through that hole. Why? Because it told us, don't look in that hole. We've never been able to stand up to the test of the law. We drop the plumb line and nobody is found true. Man, we have a problem. And we can't fix it. So I want to close an application by going back to Apollo 13 again. You know, around our house, we talk in, uh, in lines for movies and other things, you know. But there's some, there's some great lines, some great quotes in Apollo 13. So I want to lift up two more quotes and how they might relate to, to what the solution of our problem is. The first was when flight director Gene Krantz said to one of the engineers, you know, when all these things are going wrong in the spacecraft and their oxygen's venting out into space and they got this wicked shimmy and, you know, what, what do we do? And uh, flight director said to Cy, uh, let's look at this thing from, um, from a standpoint of status. What do we got on the spacecraft that's good? And there's a long pause. And Cy Liebergott says without even looking up, I'll get back to you, Gene. I'll get back to you, Gene. You know what the problem of sin and all of its effects is? We don't have thing one on the spacecraft called humanity that's good. Not a thing. Nothing. No, no. The problem of sin and death cannot be solved by human ingenuity. It can't be solved by science. It can't be solved by any human discipline. The craft is dead in the water. Drifting in space, lost in space. I'm like Paul here. I'm mixing all my, my metaphors. It's be all, all, all human hope. The other quote from Apollo 13 starts to get at the answer, even though it's the wrong answer for what we're looking at. At one point, Gene Krantz says, let's work the problem, people. Let's not think, make things worse by guessing. How do we work the problem? 
In Paul's letter to the Romans, we have one more week on the problem. I'm sorry, this has taken about six messages since we started talking about the problem of sin. We're going to have one more week on the problem of sin next week. And then the last Sunday in November, we get to the gospel and everything is gospel in the book of Romans from there on. We still have the problems, but we show how the gospel is the solution to the problems. But I, so I don't want to leave you hanging. So I want to jump to the end of the story. Where the problem of sin and death has been solved, not by humanity, not by anything man could do or can't do, but by God. So turn over to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first Corinthians. First Corinthians, chapter 15. First Corinthians, chapter 15, we'll be looking at the 20th verse in a moment. Verse 20 of the 15th chapter of first Corinthians. Paul begins chapter 15 with what has been called the gospel in a nutshell. He's talking about the gospel. Remember that? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Gospel point number one. Gospel point number two, he was buried. And gospel point number three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And verses 20 through 22 of this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians give us the ultimate solution to man's problem. The problem that we can't solve ourselves because we guess in ignorance outside of God. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death... Since by Adam, death came into the world and we inherited that terminal disease, eternally terminal disease called death. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. By Jesus Christ came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves. And as we go through this life and we try to solve all our problems and we try to make relationships better and we try to do all kinds of things, maybe sometimes we, we try to get acceptable in your sight somehow by thinking we have to do good works or, or something to gain your approval, Lord. But uh, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins... God, you demonstrated your love toward us in while we were yet sinners. That Christ died for us. Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit. We might respond. To the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we might know him as our savior. That we might know him as the one who paid the penalty for all our sin. Past, present, and future. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us in a congregation, in a church. And Father, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in those to whom we are called to give the good news. That they might be brought, people might be brought out of their ignorance and out of their sin and out of their feeble, foolish thinking and about all things, Lord, especially about their sin and their problem, Father, that you would use us as Grace Baptist Church 
to proclaim the grace and the good news in our community where there are so many people who are trying to live for themselves and trying to figure out their own problem, but they cannot do it. Father, use us in a way that will bring glory to your name and always bring us to the foot of the cross, to Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.